While it may not have the same cultural significance here as in other parts of the country, high school football is a big deal on Staten Island, with the borough producing a plethora of pro talent throughout the years in a region not known for its football prowess. Staten Island has a rich tradition of high school football, and a lot of teams have been successful in terms of championships through the years, and some teams that didn't win championships have been outstanding, and that's why Staten Island has been a, uh, you know, a hotbed for high school football. Welcome to the Staten Island Advances from the Scene, a podcast bringing you an inside look at the biggest stories on Staten Island with the reporters who cover them. I'm your host, Eric Bascom, and this week I'm joined by Staten Island Advance sports reporters Nick Regina and Charlie DBS to discuss the paper's coverage of the borough's high school football season. Thanks for joining me today, guys. Always good to have you on. Always good to talk sports, break it up a little bit with all the hard news that I'm usually covered on here between the migrant protests and the back to school and everything like that. And so... It's nice to just chop it up a little bit and it comes at a good time because I mean, I guess we're still a few weeks away, but we're getting into like my favorite time on the sports calendar probably because you've got football in full swing, you've got baseball playoffs underway, basketball and hockey are starting up soon. So I was curious for you guys, what do you think is kind of your favorite part of the sports calendar? Professionally, I I would say uh, right around the Super Bowl time. The Super Bowl, of course, is more than just the game. And, you know, I'm a big Ranger fan. Who are we going to get at the trade deadline? So uh, that the beginning of the year is a, is one of my favorites. I'll go a couple of weeks after Super Bowl time. There's that little lull after the Super Bowl, and then you get into March Madness. You got all those conference tournaments, NCAA tournament, uh, and then you got to start a baseball season right around the corner, and you're in the middle of hockey and basketball season. So I think that's a close second to right now where we're going to have all four sports going soon. And that's how I feel too. Yeah, coming up on that sports equinox that they talk about, right? When you have all four major sports playing at the same time. But that's how I feel too. It's either the fall or the spring for me. It's really the the winter and the summer can be a little bit tough. You only have a couple things going on. The weather is either too hot or it's too cold. So the spring and the fall is is really always for me the best time of the year for sports. So. I'm glad to have you guys on. I want to talk about a little high school football. I'm going to be honest at the onset here. I'm not the hugest high school football guy. I'm not following this all the time. I probably haven't been to a game since I was in high school at Curtis. So I'm relying on on you all to help me out here. And so I want to just talk a little bit about the Staten Island high school football scene and setting the stage for this, you know, the basics of it. And, you know, there's a lot of high schools on Staten Island. So I was hoping you guys could kind of break down, like, what does it look like? Do all the schools have a team? Do they all play against each other? Are they playing in other boroughs? How how does that kind of work? Um, I mean, things have changed dramatically through the years. Um, There was a time in the 60s and 70s when the Staten Island teams would exclusively play each other. Monsignor Farrell was the only Catholic team back then, and they would play the public schools every year. But that has changed dramatically now as uh, the PSAL and the CHSFL the Catholics play a seven-game schedule league. The PSEL now this year has an eight-game schedule league. They're also afforded two non-league games a year. Sometimes the island teams, it's not very often, but sometimes the island teams play each other in a non-league game. Mm-hmm. To, you know, to see something, it hasn't happened in years, unfortunately, but to see something like Farrell against Curtis, that would draw a mega attention because they just do not have time to play each other if they don't squeeze them into um, those non-league games. So that's probably the best way to describe it. They're, most of the teams are focused towards playing in their league and in their league playoffs, but uh, there is not much crossover between, between the four Catholic teams and the seven PSAL teams. 
Okay, yeah. And so in terms of the season, when do they usually get going with this? Because they start probably in the summer, I imagine, with some of the training camp stuff. And then the season, is it right as the, the school year starts as well? Yeah, they start practicing about a month, six weeks before the season starts. And uh, right around the time that school starts, about that second week in September, the season gets underway. And just to piggyback off what Charlie said, uh, we should probably explain a little bit because it is confusing. The PSAL, the Public School Athletic Leagues, we have seven standalone schools in that. There's four divisions. Our seven schools are spread among three of the divisions. We've got the quadruple A, triple A, double A, and single A. We have uh, five teams in the quadruple A, one in the triple A, and one in the single A. And then in the Catholic League, it's four teams. Monsignor Farrell's the only one in the triple A, and then we've got three in the double A. So it is a little confusing, sometimes hard to navigate who's where. But uh, just a little back. So on the A's, which one is the highest division? The PSAL has changed this probably two or three times in the last few years now. It's changing. Um, so this is the first year of the four-division system, the okay. realignment. Um, quadruple A is the highest, and okay. working their way down to single A. And do we have anyone in the quadruple A, you said? We have five teams five in the quadruple A. Okay. Yep. And so now in terms of you play the regular season, right, you're in your division. What does the, the standings look like, the playoffs, how many people are making it, and what does it look like there? Because I know you also you hear about like state championship games and city championship games, and so like how does that kind of process play out? What does a team need to do to kind of keep moving forward throughout the year? The Catholic League, every team makes the playoffs. Okay. So basically they're jostling for positioning for when the playoffs start. And then they have, depending on how many teams are in each division, the AAA, the AA, and then there's the single A, there's usually quarterfinal, semifinal, and championship games. Mm-hmm. Only about 10 years ago, New York State added a Catholic state championship. Okay. Um, Archbishop Stepanak, who was in the CHSFL AAA division, Dave several times have won the Catholic League and advanced to the state championship. Uh, Staten Island has not had a team there yet, but it's only been going on for 10 years. As far as the PSEL, they change things around a lot. Um, with Nick and I were discussing this before, talking specifically about the quadruple, which is the top tier. They have 14 teams this year. To me, they will go one of two ways. They will have uh, the top eight teams qualify for the playoffs, quarterfinals, semifinals, championship, or... The top 12, the last two don't make it. Top 12, they would have a first-round bye for the top four teams. The other eight would play, leaving four left. Then quarterfinal, semifinal, championship. We have not been alerted to what they are doing this year, but it will probably be one of those two things. Oh, wow. Yeah, so things are still kind of a work in progress. They probably know. Yeah. Right, but but they have not shared that no. with us. So. Okay, good. So I feel like we've set a good kind of foundation here. I'm feeling a little better about yeah. how things are working. So. I want to talk a little bit about our coverage and, you know, everything that we do, because obviously local sports is the one thing that we have really held strong on, especially youth sports, as you know, we, we're not quite doing the same coverage that we might have done years ago on on some other sports things. But that is something that we are still very serious about and have been uh, doing some really good stuff. So I want to talk one thing that kind of stood out to me was uh, the weekly power rankings that we've been putting out there. So I'm curious, this is a big thing. Anyone who's a sports fan, you watch, you know, ESPN or whatever. It's every week after the NFL season, it's what's the new power ranking? Where's your team? Where'd they go up? Where'd they go down? So I was curious, our decision to kind of do that ourselves, is this the first time that we're doing that? And and what is the process kind of like in terms of determining where each team is going to rank on a week-by-week week basis? So everybody loves a nice list, right? Right. Everybody, everybody loves to check in and see that every week. And, and I know Charlie and I probably hear it from all the coaches every week when we go out to these games. Why are we here? Why aren't we there? 
But um, the power rankings are actually Joe DiModio's brainchild. He does them every week. They're his rankings. He'll check in with me and Charlie for some input. But it's his baby at the end of the day that he comes up with the with the order. Gotcha. Yeah. And so what have you heard from some of these coaches who are, you know, what do they say to you when you're out there? I've heard it both ways. I've heard, why are we number one? We don't want that pressure this early in the season. We don't deserve it yet. And I've heard, why are we not in the top five? We won this week with three and two, whatever we are. There's teams with worse records than us. And going back to what we said before, a lot of it is based on competition, the division you play in. So if you saw this week's uh, Marcina Farrell's number one, they're three and two. St. Peter's is five and oh, and they're number two. And a lot of that is because of the competition that they're playing, their schedule, and uh, the league they're in. That makes a lot of sense to me. It's interesting. I hadn't really thought about the, like, we don't want to be at the top just yet. You know, you got to keep the guys motivated. And But you're right. People do love a list. People love to debate. I'm sure that that's something that, you know, they're talking about in their classrooms and stuff. Hey, did you see we're number one in the rankings this week? Or, you know, their friends are teasing them. Hey, I saw you guys drop to four. And so stuff like that, I think, is always... Always good, always engaging, but especially in sports is something that people tend to gravitate towards. So that's really cool. I'm glad that that we've kind of decided to do that now. And I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit, either one of you, about some of the standout teams so far this year, who's kind of dominating those power rankings. I mean, Monsignor Farrell is number one for a couple of reasons. They play in the the AAA, which to me, between the, the AAA in the Catholic League and the quadruple A in the PSEL league, the triple A is by far the most talented uh, in terms of all the teams and, and the competition in it. Stepanak, Farrell played earlier in the year. They're the number one team in the state, and Farrell lost to them, I believe, by five. They were down 21 nothing. came back, 16 points in the second half, had the ball, had a chance to beat them. That weighs heavy in our rankings. They almost beat the number one team in the state. They lost to Iona last week. Iona is a team that has won multiple double triple A championships. They're a good program. They they beat Farrell in the championship two years ago. St. Peter's is having one of their best seasons ever. They beat a very good team in St. John the Baptist, but the competition is a little bit less in the double A. So all the things considered, that's what uh, Joey weighs in on when making the ultimate decision on on who's one, who's two, and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, no, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. It really does come down to the quality of opponent in a lot of cases and the wins and losses, especially in football. One wrong turn, one wrong, the ball bounces the wrong way and the whole game is over. It's so many fewer games per season. Baseball, it all kind of bears itself out over the course of 100 games or whatever it is, uh, depending on where you're playing. So in football, you really do have to look at the how the teams are playing, who they're playing against, as opposed to just the record. And head-to-head is... The biggest thing, uh, Peters and Farrell aren't playing each other this year, but Farrell and Moore played, and Peters and Moore are playing on Sunday. They're going to have big implications on the next week's rankings, so we'll, we'll see. <laughs> we'll be right back. The Mayor of Maple Avenue is a powerful multi-part podcast about Sean Sinisey, a victim of former Penn State football coach Jerry Sandusky, who was arrested 10 years ago for numerous child sexual abuse charges. The podcast series is written and hosted by Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Sarah Gannam, who takes listeners into the world of addiction rehabilitation, where society can be quick to celebrate the consequences for abusers while not addressing the needs of their victims. Subscribe now to The Mayor of Maple Avenue wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, no, it's very exciting. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about the the players and if there's anyone who who has really jumped out to you so far this year because you know we've seen in the past Staten Island has 
a number of players who are now in the NFL. I mean, you look to the Ravens right now with the J.K. Dobbins injury. We've got Gus Edwards out there who might be a little banged up himself, I think. But he's out there. Tottenville product, I believe, right? Is that right? Yeah. And we've had some other guys from throughout the year. When I was at Curtis, we had Dominique Easley, who then ended up a uh, late first-round pick to the Patriots, spent a few years in the league. So throughout the years, we've seen a lot of guys. And you don't really think of Staten Island or New York or the Northeast in general as pumping out football talent. You think about places like Texas and Florida and warm-weather states where it's a bigger deal. And so I always found it interesting that we've got some pros coming out of of Staten Island. So I was wondering if there's anyone right now that you guys have seen who you think like, hey, maybe that guy has a shot to really make it to the league like some of these other guys have in the past. I wouldn't want to put that pressure on anybody just yet at this That's level. Fair. I think there's a handful of guys who will definitely go on to play at Division One schools. We have a handful of guys already at Division One schools. I know Charlie had the story last week on uh, the two Curtis guys who are at Temple now, Ahmad Anderson and Sam Martin. One guy that comes to mind to me when you mention NFL, who was a little raw last year, but he's at the University of Buffalo now, is uh, Henry Tabansi. I've heard a, a lot of talk about him maybe potentially being a guy who's an NFL body, a guy who maybe gets into camp at some point. As far as guys right now, uh, the one guy who his name has come up every week, I see him on the top performers all the time, and he's a first-year football player. I think that's what makes him so intriguing is uh, more Catholics, uh, Boakai Vikai. I hope I'm not butchering that name. But uh, he's a first-year football player. He's a six-foot-four wide receiver. I think he's had a touchdown in every game but one. He's had a couple multiple touchdown games. And I think they say he runs close to a 4-4. So he's an NFL-sized body running at NFL speed in his first year of high school football. Uh, that's incredible to me. And I, I think his potential is through the roof. And uh, he's committed to the University of Maryland right now. So he's already got the D1 offer. And um, another guy, uh, Tottenville, a freshman who just played his first game, I'm told he's the fastest player on the island already, is uh, Corey Brown, who's uh, supposedly committed to Rutgers. So a couple guys who uh, maybe uh, Division One guys down the road who maybe have an outside chance at making the league one day. I think that's really exciting when you talk about people from Sentinel. That's something that pe so many people take pride in, right? And it's just something that's cool. It pops up on your screen on a Sunday and you're like, oh, I know that guy or I went to high school with that guy. So I always think that that's interesting. Obviously, 99 point whatever percent of, of high school athletes aren't going to play professionally. But Staten Island in, in a lot of different sports, when you go on, you can go on Wikipedia and look up Staten Island athletes. And there's a, a longer list than you would think of professional athletes who have come out of this small borough. And so I, I think that that's really exciting. And it's cool to see that the borough has so much young talent out there right now. And I can't wait to see how they progress and move forward with their career. And maybe one day we will be watching them on Sunday. Maybe I'll be, you know, yelling at them for, for messing up my parlay or something like that. But there you go. So I want to talk a little bit about the work that you guys and everyone else have done actually covering these games between the public schools and the Catholic schools. There's a lot of teams out there. I imagine there's a lot of games. So how does it go in terms of deciding, you know, which ones we're covering, who's covering what, all that kind of stuff? Well, in the in the in the heyday of high school football in the advance, you got to remember, probably up to fifteen years ago, every single game would be covered. Wow, it was a time when we had twenty seven people on staff, and we would cover every single game. We would keep the stats for all those games. Obviously, times have changed; papers do not have the same type of staffs anymore, and stuff like that. So basically. You know, Nick and I and, and Joe DiMordio, um, we're on top of not only the Staten Island teams, but we have an idea on who the better teams in the league are for the PSAL and CHSFL. And if an island team that is having a good year is playing an off-island team such as Erasmus or, you know, St. Anthony's or, you know, um, uh, Stepanak, 
those are the games people are interested in. And if the Staten Island team wins, it, it, it's it's big, big news. So we judge it on the matchups coming up, uh, how the Island team is doing. And of course, the games, unfortunately, that we do not get to, we still take over the phone. And as long as the coaches supply us the information, they could tell us everything under the sun. I always say, say to them, we can't get to a game. They're disappointed, but they understand it's different. But I say, if you give me as much information as you can, throw me some quotes and everything like that, I'll make it as if though we were there. And, you know, most of the coaches cooperate, and, and uh, that's the way it is these days. And I just want to mention real quick, Joe Demodio, the sports editor. Um, Charlie and I are the only two who are really out there every weekend, but we have a couple freelance guys, Eddie Mayrose and James Special. I think I think I don't think I'm leaving anyone out, but uh, who do a great job and help us out and, yeah. and help us get to all these games uh, when obviously a lot of them are played at the same time and we can't be in a million places at once. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And Nick, I'll ask you this one because I asked Charlie something similar the last time he was on to talk Little League with me. And so can you tell us a little bit just kind of what it's like covering a game in person? Like, what are you keeping track of? What are you looking out for? Who are you trying to talk to? Walk us through an average. You arrive at the field. What happens next? The short answer is we do everything because <laughs> it's not like NFL game or a college game where you can, even as a fan, you're sitting there and all the stats are coming up on the screen for you. Mm -hmm. So we get there, you know, 30 minutes to an hour before the game. We both like to introduce ourselves to the coaches, maybe see who's not playing that day, or maybe somebody's jumping into the starting lineup who we haven't seen before. Um, so sometimes we'll pick up things before the game even starts. But once the game does start, we're on the sidelines. I have a clipboard in one hand. I have a notebook underneath the clipboard. My clipboard is the stat sheet. I'm on the sideline with the ref, the chain gang, and uh, a pass is thrown from the 28-yard line on one side of the field to the 35 on the other side of the field. We're running up the sidelines with the referee and the chain gang writing down, doing math in our heads, yeah. how many yards was that, who caught it, who threw it, and uh, the next play's already underway, and you're trying to take notes of, you know, because you don't just want to say it was a 28-yard pass to so-and-so, you want to say, you know, it's a screen pass in the flat, he had a brigade of blockers, yeah. cut up a juke move at the 27, and you're writing that and thinking all that, and I'm sure Charlie's done the same, I've come up with my own shorthand that looks like a mess at the end of the game, but sure. at the end of the day, uh, we try to get as many details as we can in there, and uh the last couple of years, we've also started doing uh, TikToks and Instagram Reels. So I'll have two notebooks in one hand, doing the math in my head, and I'll be holding the phone up with the other hand. So we wear a few different hats on game day for sure. You know, I hadn't really considered keeping track of the stats in that way because people really are, you know, a little spoiled, I guess, these days when they're watching things on TV or, or whatever it might be, and they're just seeing the stats pop up. Oh, the QB is... 13 for 17 for 146 yards and it's like oh we I did all that math in my head and I'm writing it down in the notebook I'm trying to keep track of it I guess the good thing is that with football you get some time in between plays to jot down your notes if it's basketball it's probably a little more difficult in that way you you would you might think that but as you're running up the sideline and the chains are moving and you're trying to figure out yeah. where the next play is coming from and if it's the end of a half and they're in two minute offense it's it's going quicker than you think out there and it happens fast and, you know, we try to talk to, if it's a, a game, an interborough game with two island teams, we'll try to talk to both coaches after. We'll try to grab standout players. Uh, maybe if somebody who just had uh, one big play that was pivotal in the game, we'll try to talk to those kids after the game too. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And you were really doing the, the Lord's work out there, it sounds like, especially with, like we uh, discussed earlier, kind of the staffing levels not being what they once were. And we see that across all beats now is that you kind of are a, a one-man show in a lot of cases where you're taking notes, you're taking photos, you're doing social, you're doing this, you're doing that. And so 
sounds like you guys and I, I know I've read some of the coverage. You guys are doing an incredible job with that, with the you know what what's provided to us. So one thing I wanted to talk about, and this is uh, something interesting. So I, I led with this. I really mostly watch NFL football, and I watch a little bit of college every now and then. If it's on at the bar, or I'm with a group of friends, or something like that. But I don't go out of my way for it. The high school game, from what I understand, is a bit different in terms of, obviously, you're not going to have the same quality of play, but as a result of that, a little bit different stylistically in terms of what you would see the teams run, whether it's on offense or defense, or special teams might look a little different or not be as uh, you know as effective as you might see at higher levels. So I was wondering if uh, maybe, Charlie, if you could just talk to me a little bit about what it's like watching a high school game compared to, to watching maybe college or, or NFL. Yeah, I mean, the physicality and the speed are obviously much, much different. There's a couple of things that are different in the high school game. For instance, you know, in the NFL, a holding penalty, regardless of what the play is, whether it was rushing or, or passing, it's 10-yard penalty from the line of scrimmage. But in high school, if the running back ran 20 yards and the infraction took place in yard seven, yeah, it's marked off from there. Oh, so they only lose three yards net. I well, I mean, you get, this is one of the crazy things to top on what Nick said. You don't have much time because there's, yeah. there's only 40 seconds in between plays. But so the running back would get seven yards and you would mark off the penalty from the spot of the foul. Right. So plus seven and then back 10. So yes, it would be. So they only lose three yards instead of losing 10 yards. Depending on where it is. From where the spot of the foul. That's right. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I did not know that. Yes. So that's one of the differences, um, you know, the little things like uh, the NFL, a touchback is the 25-yard line. It was 20 for years. The Catholic um, and, and public school league, it's it's the 20-yard line. Um, I don't know anything. As far as the style of play, I would say it's not as vertical as the yeah. NFL in the college game. It's more sideline to sideline, a lot of short passes in the flat, a lot of screen passes. The one thing I have seen carry over from the higher levels is the RPO, the run pass option, I feel like yeah. everybody's running RPO now. And the last 10, 15 years maybe in the NFL, you see a lot of the college game influencing the NFL game. Mm -hmm. And I think that's trickled down. And you're seeing a lot of these concepts that are run at higher levels being put into use on the high school field now. Right. Well, it makes sense. I mean, the, the kids are, are learning based on what they're seeing, right? And the, the you adapt to the new styles. It's like those videos you see online of like, third graders baby Gronk, yeah baby Gronk, and all these kinds of things you see you know they idolize and and try and imitate the players that they're watching at the highest level how is the kicking how is the special teams that's something that i always think about because sometimes in the nfl it's bad watching the kickers so i can't imagine then you get to college and then down to high school like are these i saw one of our articles i think recently someone hit like a 42 yarder and i was like oh that's that's pretty good or is that common am i being do i not realize what's going on here how how is the kicking it's it's not so common to have a great kicker. A lot of teams you'll see go for two. They don't yeah. have a guy who kicks extra points. But some of them, there's really good kickers. I know Charlie had a good matchup last week of two good kickers. I think uh, I think somebody hit a 47-yard field goal, I think, recently. Wow. The Giacomo for Farrell. Yeah. Yeah, so there are, there are some kids with big legs, for sure. A lot of schools take a, their best soccer player and make him the kicker. Right. <laughs> yeah. But there are some guys who are definitely doing it at a, at a high level. That's interesting, but you you would say generally there's a higher rate of two point conversion. I, I, was, I would say f for the games that I've covered, most of them are, are going. 15. What about the kickoffs? Are they are they are they getting touchbacks on a lot of them, or are they running these all out? Yeah, I mean the Farrell, uh, Chris, the, the Giacomo Farrell for the last fifteen years has had an exceptional kicker who was 
continually uh, got uh, touchbacks, hit field goals. They never miss extra points. Cottonville has always had a, a kicker. Who else? More Catholic has been very successful with their kicker recent years. I would say overall it's probably 50-50. You know, former uh, Susan Wagner legendary coach Al Paterzo didn't believe in kicking. They never, 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 never kicked while he was the head coach. And he was the head coach 34 years, PSEL all-time wins leader. And I think his theory is why would you go for one when you could go for two? Yeah. And they never, never, ever had a kicker. <laughs> Ahead of his time in some ways, a lot of the coaches in the NFL are starting to feel that way as yeah. well. So you just put out this feature on uh, Port Richmond High School's head coach who has been there for oh, nearly two decades now, right? And so I was wondering what made you want to do this story and tell us a little bit about it and what you learned uh, in your conversations with him. So I, I did a story a few weeks ago on a, a sophomore at Port Richmond, Kasim Cromwell, who's a really good player, maybe their best player. There's a lot of great underclassmen this year. When I was doing the story, I noticed the coach was a little hesitant to put the kid's name out there, and I, I didn't really understand why, because I always feel like most exposure is good exposure at this level. And uh, he explained to me that some of his kids have been poached by other schools and uh, the, the transfer portal, so to speak, and he was afraid to put the kid's name out there because he was afraid other schools would come calling. So he brought it up a couple other times at games that I covered since. He mentions the, the transfer rules and how it's affected his program. And originally, the story wasn't going to go the way that I wound up angling it. It was going to be a, a coach who was upset about the transfer rule. And after talking to him, I realized there was a lot more to it than just a, you know, a coach complaining. It was this guy who's been doing it for 20 years who shows up every day. And overnight, his job kind of changed because Port Richmond was this kind of legendary program. They went undefeated in 2008. They won a city title, not just the best team on Staten Island, the best team in the city. And in recent years, they've struggled to win a handful of games every year. He was 31-6 and six his first three years, and I think he's got 60 wins in the 15 years since. I thought it was important to focus on the fact that this guy shows up to work every day for almost 20 years now, and he's loyal to this school and this program, and he had a lot to say, and I, I thought uh, we did a fair job uh, painting that picture for, uh, for everybody. You did a fantastic job. I would definitely recommend our, our listeners, anyone who has not read that yet, to go check it out. And so sticking with Port Richmond, I know that they just got a new football field there, right? And that was something that we had been covering. So can you tell us a little bit about that? I know they, they had, it's been years, right, that they've been figuring it out on the fly. And so can you tell us a little bit about what was going on there? Yeah, so four years in the making, uh, that field was supposed to be ready uh, in two years, I think it was, and setbacks and tons of problems kind of forced their hand. I was telling you before that they were practicing on what amounted to basically a 50-yard va vacant lot, and then they were showing up and playing on a 100-yard field every week, and, you know, that's dangerous for the kids. It's not helping them get any better, and now they have this beautiful new football field, a beautiful surrounding track, and I'll, I'll take this moment to plug a series that we have coming. Um, we're going to be uh, going around to all uh, 11 football schools and doing uh, stories on their football fields because most of them have gotten renovations in recent years, mm -hmm. multi-million dollars, and they're beautiful now. They're playing on these awesome surfaces and a school like Port Richmond where they were struggling with uh, their football program a little bit to now have that field is a, a huge kind of feather in their cap. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so before we go, Charlie, I just wanted to ask you one more thing similar to what we had talked about when I had you on to talk about the Little League tournaments that we were hosting here on Staten Island. You've been doing this job for a long time. You've seen a lot. You know so much about Staten Island's local sports scene. So I was wondering who were some of the best high school football teams that you've covered throughout the years? Who really stands out to you and what made them so special? 
you got to understand that Staten Island has a rich tradition of high school football, and a lot of teams have been successful in terms of championships through the years, and some teams that didn't win championships were, have been outstanding. Um, there's a couple of uh, teams that stand to mind um, that I've actually covered. 1991, Monsignor Farrell won the championship, had top-notch players, Ben Cerullo, the coach. A year later, Susan Wagner, 1992, finished 12-0, unofficial state champions. Obviously, is not something that every school has. Then uh, in the later years, both the Tottenville's championship teams in 97 and 03, not sure if they had any NFL players. I can't remember off the top of my head, but they had fantastic teams. Jimmy Munson was a great coach. And then, of course, Curtis has the most PSEL city championships ever now, seven. And the last two with Pete Gambardella behind the wheel as the head coach in 16 and 17, those were tremendous championship games with Ahmad Anderson making the game-winning touchdown catch with about a minute to go, and now he's playing at Temple and stuff. So you really just can't pinpoint one. Staten Island has a number of teams that have had exceptional seasons, and that's why Staten Island has been a uh, you know a hotbed for high school football. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you guys so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it, and uh, keep up all the good work. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Staten Island Advances from the Scene. If you like what you've heard, please make sure to rate and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit SILive.com for the latest on all these stories and more. Thank you for supporting local journalism.